0: Welcome to another episode of The Bible Archives, and it's time to get into the last part of what's sometimes called the primordial history or the prehistory of Genesis. So we're going to cover chapters 10 and 11 today, and when I say 10 and 11, I mostly mean 11, because chapter 10 is one of those recurring genealogies that nobody seems to like um but we've talked several times about genealogies because they show up a lot in this section of Genesis and usually it marks a scene change so we just had this really in-depth zoomed in focus on the flood the the restart of creation and Noah and his children and now it's going to zoom back out take us through a plethora of people it's going to cover a lot of time and it's going to jump ahead and they the authors tend to use scene changes for that through genealogies um, but also remember that genealogies are about etiology so etiology being how where, where did this thing come from right? what are the origins of something and, and the bible does this a lot where, where it'll try to make sense of some phenomenon or place or person or group um, by rooting it in a previous story so Within, within all these names and places and, and details, we're going to get some descriptions of the developments that has happened in the world that the authors of Genesis are saying this is post-second creation. So, after the first creation, you got a genealogy. Well, here you are. Another creation just happened. Uh, now it's all rooted in Noah and his sons, and so here's here's a description. Here's Here's a genealogy. But we have to get used to interacting with genealogies in this way because they'll keep showing up throughout the Hebrew scriptures. You get some even within the gospels. Um, so it's important to not just skip over this stuff.
1: Right. Um, I have an uh, Oh, a kind of a definition, then, that might help us to make this a little clear, and it comes from the New Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. And it says that these geographical references should not be understood solely in a literal sense, since ethnicity can often function as a symbolic rhetorical marker to signal certain attitudes, values, and beliefs about the writing of the narrative, as opposed to those mentioned in the narrative. So, in other words, it's not a literal list of descendants, this, uh, descendants but it's designed to place the, the like you said, place the the history and the people in a certain context that the writers and the readers would have understood.
0: Yeah. And I think it's worth bringing up something. I think we talked about this in the overview episode on Genesis is, uh, modern folk, you know, post enlightenment, uh, usually in the Western portion of the world. We're very concerned about history Mm -hmm. and details and facts. There's a lot of reasons why I believe, um, we have to go ahead and be honest that the authors of Genesis, that's not their primary concern. I think it's still a concern, and we'll see that as we keep going through the book. Right. History becomes a little bit more important. But their goal with the genealogy is not to tell us the exact names and places so that we can have a written record. And then, you know, it makes it easier for genealogical uh, family-finding missions to occur later in the future. That, mm. That's not their goal. Their their goal is to try to tell us something about how the world works and, and mm-hmm. how we got to where we are. So that's kind of what we're seeing. Uh, the genealogy in Chapter 10, it's really it, it's just terrible of us that we go, hey, pay attention to the genealogies and then watch us skip through a bunch of information <laughs> here. Um, Because all I want to do here is just highlight what I think is the most important parts of this genealogy. And based on the last chapter, so chapter 9 is where you get this curse of Canaan because of Ham, we probably should pay attention then to how the descendants of Ham and Canaan are described. And if you're looking at the text of Genesis 10, you'll notice that this group, this people group gets a lot more attention and it goes into a lot more detail um, about, you know, who are the people who come and the tribes, therefore, that come from Ham and, and Canaan. So the cliff note version of what I notice happening here is that in in this section of the genealogy, that comes from these these two folks, from the curse, the majority of Israel's future enemies are listed as descendants of Ham and Canaan. Okay, so you're going to see Egypt in there, you're going to see Babylon in there, you're going to see Akkad in there, Assyria, the Philistines, Canaan himself, uh, Saddam and Gomorrah are listed. It's a very intentional to to place, hey, Canaan is cursed, and look, all of our future enemies come from this group. That means that the curse of Canaan has some residue that's going to be on these people and is going to help them make sense of why are they enemies towards us? Why, why is there this antagonism and animosity? So that's one really important thing to notice. Another uh, component that's of particular importance is this description we get of Cush became, becoming the father of Nimrod. And then it says, he was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So if you're reading this and you know what happens next in Genesis 11, and I'm assuming here that you know that the next story is popularly titled The Tower of Babel, there seems to be a connection here in the genealogy that... We're told something about that story by the characters being placed within this portion of the genealogy. And then we get these extra details about who they are, how they worked, and what was going on. So, so here's all I'll say. If you are trying to read the next chapter, Genesis 11, and, and the famous Tower of Babel story, without paying attention to the founder of Babel... You're not working with all the information, and you might be missing something. Like, how often do we get confused about the Bible just because we're not paying attention? So if you skip this part, right, you skip, you skip Genesis 10. You skip the genealogy because it's boring. Well, then you have to make stuff up about the story when the details are here. It's, they've been provided. So whatever we're about to read about the Tower of Babel— Well, it was founded by Nimrod. He was a mighty warrior, and he had a kingdom. So that should impact our interpretation of the next chapter. So that's all we're going to talk about Genesis 10. Okay. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, But I, I guess I'll just add, there's a lot of, you know, that ideological, the describing of how something originated. There's a lot of that in there. Um, some of it will have important connections for other parts of the Jewish tradition. Um, some of it, you know, it's not so clear what the connections are. But it's worth, it's worth seeing how they artfully put all that together um, and how they're describing how the world's supposed to work.
1: Yeah, I think because since sometimes these stories were written in different places and in times, it helps to weave it together. Then the writers who were putting together the whole book of Genesis, that helps them to, as you say, smoothly go from one story to another and explain what this next story is going to be about so that it comes together as a whole.
0: Yep. So let's just jump into Genesis 11. Now, one of the first things we read, the whole earth had one language. Which, if you paid attention to Genesis 10, your response should be, What? And we were just told about all these cultures and people and lands and their languages. So, how does the whole earth have one language now? And just to clue you in, all right, let's start moving past very surface level interpretation. Um, Let's try to connect some things this conglomeration of people we're being told about is heading in what direction? Because we're also told that at the beginning of Genesis 11. East. Babel is Babylon, which is to the east. So Babylon is sometimes referenced as the first civilization, usually regarded as the first empire in world history. Um, And this is where we have to start drawing some connections based on what we read about Nimrod because what do civilizations and empires do? They, they consolidate, they centralize, usually under uh, economic and military power. And that's how they kind of create this, this larger region of people as opposed to small tribes and villages. That seems to be what's going on here. And who are we told founded Babel? A mighty warrior. So I often hear Genesis 11 talked about as, well, this is about how the singularity of language is bad, or uh, these people coming together and God, God had to spread them out, you know, because God doesn't like that they're all together. I think we have to stop and go, is the singularity of language bad, or is the civilized centralization under military force bad? So I know I'm jumping to some conclusions there, and and hopefully we'll unpack that a little bit more. I'm just, we need to connect this with Genesis 10, and we need to see that there's something else going on here. And, And this starts unfolding more as we start talking about bricks. And as has been the case with, you know, every chapter in Genesis so far, they are writing in a very particular culture. And so if we can see, like, so, so how, how does the cultural context of what's going on in this situation help inform my, maybe why they were writing in the way that they were?
1: Yeah, the Babylonians themselves, of course, are going to make their story of their city about the gods, and that's what they've done. They've added to that Enuma Elish, which you've heard us talk about before in the previous chapters, which is kind of one of their creation narratives about how their people and their cities and their civilization then came to be. So in their story, these bricks are made in this year-long ceremony that involved the gods. The gods are building this tower. They call it a ziggurat. It's a particular kind of stepped tower And they were often places of worship and ritual, and they would have temples in them for the gods. And in this case, the gods themselves are making the temple for their head god, Enlil. And the bricks, to make the bricks, becomes an almost ceremonial way of of making them and forming them and then building it. Um... And so that was important to them. It was about then showing how the gods are the ones who are making their civilization. And it also puts someone like Nimrod then perhaps in a state of saying, well, then the gods are supporting me. I have a, a hierarchy of I'm your, the king or the head of the whole thing. So it's, it's interesting the way that kind of happens.
0: And we can place this, uh, this story within a, a socio-historical context where this is what was happening. The world's kind of moving from nomadic to semi-nomadic to uh, more centralized states. We're not quite to the point where you have nations in world history yet, but that's beginning to happen. And, And like I said, Babylon is one of the first recognized to do that. And we looked at this a little bit in the context of Genesis chapter four, how that seems to be a part of the discussion when Israel's trying to figure out who they are and how they got here. Mm-hmm. And it's in contrast to Babylon and, you know, fast forward a long time. And who are they going to have conflict with? Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and some of these places around them that have moved in this uh, higher regard of centralization economy military and Israel hasn't. So that becomes a really dominant theme in, in the, the biblical narrative. But you're seeing that on, on on a scale here where it's zoomed way on, way in on a, on a a particular instance. All right. So you get this situation, they make bricks and they stack them. Um, as you bring up the, the Enuma Elish talks about how the gods are the ones who make the bricks. And then that gives sort of a justification, divine right for a a ruler. Um, And it gives the spiritual ethos to the project itself. I think uh, this is another example of um, the Hebrew scriptures demythologizing their neighbors to go, oh no, the humans actually made the bricks, not the gods. Right. So I think that's playing a role there. But then we start getting into the details of the story itself. And this is where we have to start going, what, what is this trying to say to us?
1: Yeah, there's a couple different interpretations of that. Um, one particular biblical scholar, his name is Eckhart Fromm, and um, he's from what they call the Cognitive Environmental Criticism School, which involves the way an author's cultural context influences what and how they might write or tell a story. So it kind of sees that narrative of the Tower of Babel as a countertext, that the Israelites are writing this as a countertext, um, where that author would take a piece of this earlier literature, in this case the Enuma Elish, and then turns it on its head, changing the message into one that fits then that writer's worldview so in the mind of the hebrew writer building the tower was not about the gods but was about humans presenting a challenge to god humans are the ones building the tower not the gods you know or the god or the gods because they presumptuously believe then that they can build high enough to reach the heavens Mm
0: -hmm. okay so you get this Confrontation of challenging God, but it also introduces the idea that this is, it, or it could have something to do with technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that is important, but, you know, we've kind of been hinting that there's this unification, centralization problem that is somehow paired with technology.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I myself think it's more about people were afraid of being spread. They wanted to come together in cities instead of being spread out. And so it may have been more of a fearful way of, of coming together tribally to mm. stick to your own kind. kind
0: yeah, of I, thing. Think, I think the, uh, the notion of centralization sociologically is pretty evident throughout history. That's sure. what humans have done. Yeah. So here that's happening. And technology seems to be playing a role, but we have to remember this other detail, that there's both an economic and military component to it as well. Mm -hmm. So is it them building a tower to somehow interact with metaphysics or supernatural forces? Maybe, but there's also these other elements we have to take into account. So we can't just leave the interpretation um, at, at the whole confrontation to God by building a tower. We've got to account for these other things. Um, And I think one of our first details, and again, this is going to be dependent on how late Genesis was written down. Uh, And we, we covered some of that in the overview episode. But if the narrative of Exodus, or at least the tradition of Exodus, already existed, then we get this line here that they're making bricks and stacking them and they're using bitumen for mortar, that same concept's going to show up again in Exodus. Okay. And, and in that narrative, it's not viewed as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. It's really a negative thing. And, and you start seeing, actually, just within this story, some comparisons between Babel or Babylon and Egypt. Okay. And really, you know, if you go back to what I said in Genesis 10, that there's these these major these major sociological players, Egypt, Akkad, Babylon, Assyria, that are all mentioned under Canaan and Ham's genealogy, they all kind of take on a similar archetype for Israel, for for pretty much the rest of the biblical tradition. Um, And so, you know, we're not attacking Babylon here. We're not attacking Egypt, but what Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, even Persia, you could throw in there, Symbolically represents within the world and it deals with military, economic centralization um, and and technology and this whole process that we're getting a first glimpse of here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that is important to it.
1: Sure. The building of big cities. I mean, that's what this is all based on is this idea is if you have bricks and this is a technology that allows you to build taller towers, higher walls, bigger things, and which just, you know, means more accumulation of wealth for whoever the people are in power.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a critique with, and and I think we first saw this critique in Genesis four. I know that's the, that's the direction I argued for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you're going to keep seeing this critique and Israel becomes a very agrarian nation. Not a not a highly centralized one, and so were they trying to make a case that their way was the right way, or are we getting a moral code here that centralization and sociological power is dangerous? You know, I, I think you could make an argument for both, but you know, you, you go even just using the historical situation of the ziggurat, which is a very specific kind of tower that right. we have records of, and. You can Google ziggurat mm-hmm. and see images of, about what they look like, at least to some degree. And the, the way that this is posed here in Genesis is that they're, they're making a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And they're doing so, it appears, to avoid scattering. And so if you are a dominant force, who could scatter you Well, a greater force than you, which could be another civilization or could be the gods. And so the idea of communing with the gods is becoming important. I do think there's some validity to that. Um, But I want to go back to the uh, technology point, because if you if you don't have bricks, what do you build with? And, you know, we can look back at Near Eastern archaeology. Most of the buildings and homes were built with stone. And you can only stack a stone so high. So right. imagine, I love looking at it uh, from this perspective. Imagine walking into Babel at the time. And all you've ever seen are buildings made of stone. So they're not, they're not very big. And you stumble across one of these ziggurats. What do you think when you see that building? right A tower that looks like it reaches up to the skies That's organized by the dominant power of the day. How do you feel about that? And this is where my perspective is that the Tower of Babel is about technology, but it's also about power.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: The power's use of technology. And I think one of the cases that can be made that's being talked about here is that if we can build something so great and run the world at the same time, through technology, Mm -hmm. we're kind of like the gods now. We are the greater force. And I think that's kind of what this is about, which would then make this very similar to Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 6. You know, I don't think this is a a new narrative in what we've seen in Genesis so far. I think it's trying to make a point about what's already been happening in the story. So So that's how it all starts off. They build this tower... Reaches to the sky. It's built by Nimrod. Babel and Babylon becoming a really dominant force. There's all these sociological currents going on within that. And then we get the first comedic punchline in the Bible.
1: Yes, we do. I love this.
0: <laughs> and uh, honestly, when I'll read this text with people, you know, they're studying Genesis 11 or something, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just have them read. And, and everybody skips this. Not like they, they they read it and they don't recognize what they read and they'll be like, okay, wait. Go back and read that again. Why why is it said like that? So the line is, I came down to see the city and the tower that the mortals had built. This is where we're supposed to laugh. Yeah. it's
1: God's stooping down. It's like, look at what those little people are doing. It's like your child playing with bricks on the floor. And you're like, oh, what did you just make there?
0: Because the image is that we built this tower that reaches up to the heavens that reaches up to this other realm. Mm-hmm. And we are going to be like the gods and, you know, Adonai's responses, uh, sorry, everybody, I have to come down here. I can't quite see what you did there. Ah, nice, nice little tower. You cute little mortals. Th- that's kind of what I, like I've joked about this before. Um, the, and uh, um, this is a joke, okay? That the actual Hebrew here is, oh, you built a tower that reaches to the heavens? You've harnessed technology and military power and think you are like the gods? Hold on, I can't quite see your paltry little tower down there, mortals. Let me come and have a look. And it's, it's kind of like saying, it's not as great as you thought. They What they're attempting to do has not quite happened. So God and transcendence, still surpasses what these and the word mortal being used there is intentional we we haven't really seen that word used yet in genesis uh there's a finiteness even though this dominant military economic power is starting to exist they're still finite they're still human and that's a that's a huge knock on any of these powers of the day.
1: Yeah, it's like not uh, recognizing the fact that how small they really are in comparison. Um, but I have heard another, and, and it would kind of go along with that idea that humans were trying to bring God down. Um, one of the interesting things about ziggurats is that they were also gardens. They were walled gardens that were built as towers. And so in a way these humans might have been trying to recreate their own garden of Eden. And of course they can't do that. You know, a human isn't going to be able to do that. So to call them mortals is to say, you know, you're not going to be able to bring that back. You're never going to be able to go back to that state. That's not what God's intention was. And and paltry humans can't just go ahead and, and try to create their own gardens of Eden. Mm-hmm. They have to they have to now move on and do what they were expected to do and what they were commanded to do
0: well and if you think about this from the perspective of israel and judah later on in history and they have their monarchy and then they split yeah um, they never they never arrived on the power scene israel and judah never became more than a quaint little tribal vassal that people would mess with and Mm -hmm. utilize And so for them to have a narrative that says, even Egypt, even Assyria, even Babylon, even Persia, where the leaders of this act like gods, that they're more than human. And you see a, you know, Assyria had some of the first organized military in the world and to see them marching on your city would be terrifying. And to have a story that goes, they're all still just humans. And if you look at this through the context of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, especially within like chapter six through like 18, 19, yeah, it could kind of, maybe like Isaiah 11 through 29, even, uh, the whole thing is either God saying that military force that took out that place, mm-hmm. that was actually me. Oh yeah. They're just an instrument of me mm-hmm. or going, they're going to be devastated as well. Mm-hmm. Something's going to happen to them and they're going to fall. Uh, And it kind of just puts all these powerful nation states in a certain place that we see here, they're mortals.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's almost like that's the way Israel was able to hang on to its identity through all those processes of being conquered by these people that seemed like. Uh, empires that were much greater than them and yet many of those empires kind of disappeared i think we talked about this before um you know except for in the narratives of the bible we didn't even know where they existed until maybe the late 19th century or early rather early 20th century um where they were finally able to find some of these civilizations again and yet Mm -hmm. israel as a identity had continued on, so it's kind of a, a, a strange and interesting polemic. There are not polemic. A strange and interesting um, idea there that these these nations turned out to not be, and I and because of the way Israel viewed God and saw that as this isn't a God that is influenced by or conquered by another nation. Our God is I, his identity is kept with us, and sometimes the things that these even these people do become what god is doing it's like they're kind of the pawns to him to making these things happen mm-hmm. in order to make events in the world work out the way they do
0: i mean the tortoise and the hare trope might actually be applicable yeah. there yeah, really, because that is what happens i mean have you ever have you met a babylonian yeah that's have you ever met an assyrian mm-hmm. no they they were at the height of civilization and they don't exist anymore that's right um egypt would be a a separate case there, but Egypt as it was, is not Egypt as it is today. Um, so there's something sacred about the memory and tradition that has continued within Judaism, this small little tribal mm-hmm. nothing. Um, and I think there is a point to be made here philosophically about, uh, transcendence versus uh, limited, finite, sentient human beings. Um, That no, even if they're the most powerful in the world, they're still human beings at the end of it. That seems to be a a major thrust Mm -hmm. here in the Tower of Babel story. Uh, Now, from here, God gives a response and God responds um, that they are one people with one language. And this seems to be a response of threat or it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is it a problem? And I've seen a lot of people, especially people preaching on this passage, take it in a way where I'm like, we're making stuff up. If we have to guess here about what's going on, we're going to end up with really, really fragile interpretations. Because in Genesis 2, oneness, echad, that's a really good thing. In fact, that's what human beings are meant to exist in. So here they are echad, and it seems like it's a problem. So, what I would say is that unity here is not the problem. And I would also emphasize that they are not somehow a threat to God's power. So, the question is what are they a threat to? Well, if their unity is going to be anything like Egypt's or Babylon's or Assyria's or Persia's or Greece's or Rome's or any of the, the major socio political powers that gained their centralization by killing lots of people and dominating the landscape than what we actually have here. When God says they're one people with one language, we have the same problem as Genesis six, which would be also similar to Genesis four. You know, they're creating boundaries and ownership that create animosity between people who are supposed to be collaborating together for the good of all creation or Genesis 6, where they're they're united, kind of, but they're killing each other. And there's this plethora of violence. So the unity is not the problem. It's how they're united that is the problem. And I think that's a major source of confrontation. And think back to Genesis 3. And, and I hope you're seeing my push is you have to read all of these narratives together, right? Overextension leads to antagonism and competition, which leads to violence which leads to the breath of all life being extinguished. And all we have seen is that it starts with a couple of brothers, then it's all flesh. So that's the flood narrative. Mm-hmm. And now you have entire empires doing this. So, what happens when that disposition of human beings keeps gaining steam? Well, eventually you end up with Nimrod and Babel. And eventually you're going to end up with Egypt in slavery. I think the point here is not God wanting everybody to speak different languages or God, not liking that people are together. It's God stopping that progression. So does this have something to do with language and technology? Absolutely. Technology can play a role. Centralizing language is one of the key factors Mm -hmm. of creating a common tribal identity. It has less to do with God stopping human plans than and this is my opinion, God being diametrically opposed to consolidated power at the expense of the whole. In, in short, this is about empire. Yeah. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we're looking at this through the lens of Genesis 6, Genesis 4, and if I wanted to start connecting this whole primeval history, I would maybe use the line that progress is not always progress. And if we're looking at this through the later Israel, right? Like right. exile, post-exile, this story might exist to act as a warning to them, right? If you have the covenant, if you are responsible for taking the world in a good direction, which would not be east, which we this is again, moving east, then don't try this, right? Don't become like them. Don't play that game. There's an inherent suspicion of technology and power, where those things aren't, you know, just completely bad, but they are volatile and they are dangerous, right? And also, and I think this is a theory that you you uh, adhere to as well. They're supposed to be going out right. to the ends of the earth. So if you're centralizing and developing this singular power that kind of moves vertically at the expense of others, you know, not only is that opposed to the whole notion of the covenant that's supposed to be good for the whole earth, exactly you're going the wrong direction, right? Eastward might be vertical, but eastward is not always forward. That was, that, you know, if I was preaching that, that's probably the direction I would <laughs> right, yeah. I would go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing this in light of Genesis 2 uh, and, and the, the unity, but then also Genesis 1 and, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. That does seem to, if you're if you, all you had was Genesis 1 and Genesis 11, you'd go, oh yeah, that seems like a problem. Mm-hmm. So one way we might want to look at all of Genesis, you know, three through 11, but this, this, whole, this whole mythic history part so far is these are all just examples of what not to do, mm-hmm. okay? And here's what happens when things go in the wrong direction. So in that way, it's a very ethical imperative for who Israel's going to be, but also you know, what it means to be a human being in the world and we've covered lots of ground in that so far in just these 11 chapters and you know i really do think this comes to a head here because this problem that you see in babel if it's true that's going to be the dominant problem from here on out you know you look at deuteronomy you look at uh you know first and second samuel first and second kings um what's the issue with israel there well you could kind of say they've become like Babel. They're doing the very thing that was supposed to be stopped, uh, which means they're not doing their covenant. And and so here, as the Tower of Babel story ends, now Genesis is going to transition almost completely. Right. It's going to even feel like a whole different book now. Um. And so I think it's important that it culminates here, and that's why it's got to be more than just, you know. Oh, language. That's how language got started. See, you know, now we babble Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) and it, we, we got to pay attention to what, what the, the force of that uh, story is. Um, because now whatever we're going to read about the covenant is in response to all these images of what shouldn't be happening. Um,
1: yeah that that human beings this is kind of the first 11 chapters is about the history of humanity and then how humans have created a world that the divine really can't interact with well and so that covenant then what we will start to get into in chapters 12 and then on the way through to genesis um helps to explain how we can get back in a in a right relationship then with the divine and then again how sometimes that changes depending on his on the history of Israel and how they responded to that, how they interacted with the land and the world. Like we were saying, you know, did they try to become like empire? Did they try to become monarchies or were they then, you know, going along with the covenant that they had received then from, from God?
0: Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what happens here at the end of Genesis 11 is you get done with uh, the Babel story and it's like, okay, so if all of this so far is what we're not supposed to do, and it's all in contrast to Genesis one and Genesis two, what are we supposed to do? Right. And it's almost like the book picks up and goes, ah, yes, let's answer that question. Here we go. And that question's actually going to take you through everything else, actually. It that's the, the rest that's of the Genesis, question.
1: 12 through 50. Yeah. 50 chapters. It, yeah. The, and
0: then it, but you keep Exodus and mm-hmm. the rest yeah. of the Torah. Well, it goes and, on and on. And you, a, a Christian could even make a point that that's the same question being answered in the Gospels oh, and absolutely. the Epistles. And mm-hmm. it's the question... C- yeah. continues it, I,
1: I would say covenant is something you really need to understand in order to understand the whole trajectory of, of Israelite history and then even into Christianity the way the early Christians saw Jesus and, yeah. and the influence that he had
0: well, and I, I before we get to this last part of Genesis eleven, um, you know think about all the things that these eleven chapters have covered they've covered uh, transcendence and metaphysics they've covered ethics and morality they've covered sociology they've covered anthropology they've covered empire they've all of these topics have been brought up so far um, and so it's very rich with depth in how this should be shaping the uh, Jewish imagination mm-hmm. and you're going to see these themes play out again and again and again and again um, so now you get to the end of Genesis 11 and, you know, you could probably guess, what are you going to get? Because a transition is about to happen, going to get a genealogy. Um, and one thing to notice about this gen- genealogy is notice the difference in years here, right? There's, there's kind of an artistic re- rendition of the shift in the narrative because, we're you know, here we're moving from prehistory to history in the sense that uh, we're now going to have people and places and events that reflect like the world as we know it. Um, But you notice the years now are getting really close to that 120 year lifespan that was put on them back in uh, Genesis six. But most importantly, this is where we meet Terah and Abram or Abram Um, and the, uh, the location we're given very important, Ur of the Chaldeans. Oh, yeah. um, Which is sometimes called the birthplace of civilization, which is what eventually becomes Babylon. That's right. So um, the way this part of the story kind of picks up is uh, Haran, uh, the father of Lot, dies. And then um, Abram and Nahor take wives. Abram marries Sarai. Mm Mm-hmm. Who is barren. And that's going to be really important for how the story continues. And um, a note on barrenness is barrenness is going to become a theme. So being barren in the ancient world was a way of, um, you know, you're cursed. Yeah, That's that's a huge problem, not just physically, um, but spiritually. If we want to use that word, um, that's a problem that the gods had something to do with that. You know, maybe you're being punished for something or you're taking on some sort of shame or guilt for uh, the social setting as a whole. Mm -hmm. But barrenness is a problem. Um, And I've even heard it articulated because barrenness is such a theme in the Bible that God usually has favor. So Adonai, in comparison to how people understood barrenness, that it's a curse from the deities. Mm -hmm. I always interacts with barren women. And the one interpretation, I, I, I couldn't uh, vouch for this academically. I, I haven't done any of that work myself, but I've heard this and I really like it, is that uh, why does God have such connection and intimacy with barren women? And it's because Genesis 1 through 3 portrays God as a barren mother. Who, oh, wow. Who produces life and you know, almost like Genesis three is God having a miscarriage. Wow. interesting! it's a really profound thought Mm -hmm. and and not just because it's poetic, but because it is true that, you know, you're going to see it first with Sarah. Absolutely. You're going to see it again and again and again throughout, Mm -hmm. throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures. So that's just something interesting to bring up there. Um, but what I see as the crux of this last part, as we're shifting to Genesis 12, is uh, Abram is going to go from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. And, mm-hmm. and I wish right now I could show you all a map because it's easier to see. If, you, if you're looking at a map of uh, the ancient Near East, it's it's really interesting to see it this way. Uh, going to go from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan, which at this point in history is nothing. It's also barren, right? Okay. There's, so there, the land
1: is also barren.
0: Yeah. And so if you looked at a map, you could start with, with um, um, Abram in, in Babylon, and he's going to w- literally walk backwards from the most progressed civilization, and then it gets a little less progressed, a little less progressed, a little less progressed, as this arc throughout the ancient Near East all the way to Canaan, which is like the wild nothing. And that's where the covenant is going to unfold. Now, it's, it's important to say here, if, if you are looking at a map, um, of the ancient, ancient Near East, uh, first, it's not going to say Babylon. So I'm, I'm kind of using Babylon here as what it's going to be referred to much later. So you have a lot of these smaller civilized states that eventually conglomerate, congeal, are at odds with each other. And out of that comes Babylon, which becomes a much larger territory. Um, so this is initially, you know, it's going to be called Sumer. And, and so I'm saying this is the uh, oldest um, civilization that we know of. Um, that's Sumer, which eventually kind of morphs and, you know, through various clashes becomes Babylon in a way. Um, the you will see throughout the hebrew scriptures that they refer i don't think they actually use the title sumer at all i don't think all, they
1: ever do but no.
0: but that that's what historically we're talking about and i am also not saying that uh, the the levant so what eventually becomes israel palestine um is empty like that there's nobody here there's no civilization there yet
1: so no big cities no empires Like Babylon, which is, yeah, maybe you're right in saying that's the first big empire city ziggurat building thing, you know, some of these other places Uh, may have been smaller.
0: But what I'm trying to trace is this arc where, you know, you Mm -hmm. start down there by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and you start going north and eventually you're going to come across Assyria, but Assyria is not a big deal yet. Right. And so it's a little bit... uh, a little bit progressed, but not quite the babble And then you keep going backwards and they keep getting smaller and smaller in, uh, in, it kind of arcs around, um, um, uh, the Arabian desert, uh, which they don't call it that yet, but you, you have no like caravan trail through there. So you got to arc around and eventually you come to what will be known as Canaan. Um, and you know, at the most there's nomadic tribes here. And the topography is not very gracious compared to the irrigation and things that are starting to happen with these flooding rivers over uh, in, in Sumer and Babylon and Ur of the Chaldeans. And um, I just love the image that when Adonai wants to start this covenant and start this new thing and be different than all these pictures we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11 starts in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Really, really awesome. Another motif. <laughs> and, and it is. It yeah. is going to be an important motif, again, throughout the whole thing. Even the prophets. Where do the prophets go? They, they, they come from and go out to the middle of nowhere to begin. Yep. Where is Jesus from? The middle of nowhere. doesn't come from Jerusalem. doesn't come from the, the height of uh, the, the, the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Nazareth. Right? Yeah. It, it's, it's a really powerful motif, I think. And you see it here. So I just wanted to point out that we see it here. So that ends um, not only Genesis 11 and the Babel story, that ends this whole section that is kind of split off in Genesis. And again, you know, uh, the, the mythic history, or primordial history, or uh, the prehistory. That's now done. Now we're going to jump into the, uh, the patriarchal history, the covenantal history, and it's going to start with Abram. Um, So that's what we will do next time on the Bible Archives. We're going to get into Genesis chapter 12.